Hey everyone, welcome to the Sneaker History Podcast, where we dive into the people, stories, and iconic moments that have helped make sneakers a global phenomenon. If you've ever told someone that you like their kicks, then you're in the right place. Before we lace up this episode, here's a little teaser for you. Stick around to the end of each episode for the last shot question. It's a chance to test your sneaker knowledge and engage with our community. I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com slash newsletter for a weekly deep dive into the biggest topics in the sneaker business. All right, now that the business is taken care of, grab your favorite pair of kicks and let's get started with the episode. Jordan trying to shake off Starks. Oh, what a move! Against Gil, the crowd on its feet. Allen for the win! To the Sneaker History Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Know Your Roots Podcast. I'm Robbie, and I'm almost sitting here with Rowett. How you doing today? I'm doing well, Robbie. How are you? I'm good. We're remotely sitting. We're about... We're six feet away, for sure. Six feet away plus about a mile and a half i yeah. would say is our total distance from one another I, i'll definitely have to run that back on google maps but yeah i think that sounds about right you know we're practicing that social distance game and i would say we're leading the league in it our purr is through the roof <laughs> player efficiency rating is one of my favorite things on earth some hate it but i think it's fantastic um which if you haven't noticed by the basketball lingo, um, we're going to be talking about basketball, but more specifically, we're going to tie it back in to a singular basketball line. We're going to be talking about the Hirachi line from Nike basketball and how it's kind of interwoven itself into both the DNA of basketball and the NBA, NCAA, dare I say WNBA. It's just, it's it's one of the more important shoes that has graced the hardwood. And we're going to take a look back at kind of highlights, highlight players, um, highlight moments. And it's kind of run, it sounds kind of ambiguous, but we're leaving it a little wide open just so we could um, explore a little bit more. Oh, that makes sense to me. Uh, in fact, already kind of going through our pregame meeting, if you will, there are definitely some fun talking points that Robbie and I discussed, and we can't wait to share them with the group and also hear back from you guys via the Sneaker History IG account, as well as our respective Twitters. Exactly. So before we do a belly flop into it, um, I know you're at home, but what shoes have you been rocking? I saw you matched my five rotation with a very, very caliente kobe lineup for sure uh i am right now wearing my what the kobe eights so thank you for the shout out on instagram and i'm really making more of an effort to participate in the sneaker theme festivities as well as any sort of physical activity so thank you for the push-up nomination as well i'm sure my wife was really happy i got some exercise in during quarantine gate 2020 but how about yourself robbie what are you wearing i've been wearing some air maxes i've been alternating between the original white and red Air Max 1 and the Super Nintendo 1997 Air Maxes. Air Max 97. Um, I just started thinking, I'm like, man, 
our last episode, we talked about WWE, and there's a lot of good WWE games on the N64. I believe which, No Mercy is the gold standard, if I remember correctly. I watch a lot of YouTube on video games, and there's always a wrestling game on N64 brought up as some of the best games on the console. So I've been feeling nostalgic wearing some N64 shoes. Um, so speaking of the 90s, that shoe was a 1997 shoe. If you take it back a couple years earlier, more specifically five years, you had the introduction of the Nike Air Hirachi basketball. Um, the year prior, 1991, you saw the traditional Hirachi trainer, which just about everybody should be familiar with, if not already is. Um, all white, all black, fun colors. They come in every which kind of form. But in today's episode, we're going to be talking specifically about uh, just the various lines that spawned from the basketball segment. So we're not going to be talking about uh, like Hirachi riffs or trainers or um, I can't think of any other Hirachis right now. Um, but that's not important. So we're going to be focusing on the basketball side. And 1992 happened to be a phenomenal year in NCAA hoops. Um, more specifically, the more I'm trying to think, would you say the Michigan Fab Five is the most famous collection of basketball players in NCAA history? Oh, I I wouldn't make the argument that we the closest comparison we can have is we saw how much hullabaloo, if we will, saw with Zion joining the collegiate ranks. Imagine five Zions on the same team because I kind of spoke to my OG friends about it and they said it was unheard of at the time to have five freshmen make a team, let alone start, which is eventually what happened with that Michigan team. And I think there is a cultural relevance that is associated with that team that not only did they revolutionize how we saw athletics, we also see them having a revolutionary impact on aesthetics as well. And this is something you'll kind of go into a little bit uh, more, Robbie, when you do more of the tech pack stuff of what made the Hirachi so relevant from a sneaker perspective. But Michigan Fab Five ushered in that era of baggy shorts, the black Hirachis, those black socks. And it just indicated that there was a new way of thinking and a new way of playing that took more emphasis from the street than it did the short shorts, high socks era of collegiate basketball. You're right on the, right on the nose. I think that's the best way of saying it. Um, what they did was truly transcend traditional basketball. Like they really elevated everything up to a level unseen before. And you touched on the socks and the shorts, um, but the shoes, i.e. the Hirachi basketballs, they were something so different that it perfectly matched up to what Jalen Rose, Jimmy King, Juwan Howard, and Chris Webber were doing. And Ray Jackson. Can't leave out. I, can't, I cannot forget Ray Jackson. But um, it perfectly fit what they were doing. They were bringing in a new sense of style and that's exactly what the Hirachi did. So traditional basketball shoes to that time were clunkier. Um, we had 
quite hit the Penny Hardaway Zoom Air. That was about one to two. That was about two, three years down the road. But before then, all we had was just more clunky shoes. Now, for as great as the Jordan line was, I'm thinking the Jordan 6, 5, and 4, the three leading up to 1992, they were all using external air units in the heel, which was great. Well, the 6 didn't. 6 was internal. But they had air units in the heel, very stiff, very rigid, um, leather or nubuck construction on the top. So not a lot of give there. And the Hirachi just flips all that and did the complete opposite. So you had a neoprene booty, which is the same kind of material that you would find in a wetsuit or any kind of water-based product. And that's where the inspiration actually came from. Um, Tinker Hatfield, um, I think he was either uh, scuba diving or um, surfing or bodyboarding, something in the ocean. And he had the suit on and he's like, man, this would be great on a pair of shoes. It fits right to you. So they took that same idea and they implemented it into a shoe within like a system. So you had the neoprene booty, then you had these wings on the side of the shoe. Um, if you've seen it, which I'm sure you have, you're familiar with these little triangle shaped wings on the side and those would lock you in. So you would step into the neoprene, feels like you're wearing a booty and then you'd be able to tie up the side arms or whatever you want to call them and have a good lockdown. So that kind of makeup allowed for the shoe to be more flexible, quicker, um, and just faster as a lighter shoe. So that was exactly playing into the styles of Chris Weber and Juwan Howard. They were both big men who were hyper athletic, could move with grace, but still carried a good amount of the traditional position makeup. No, I think, I think that's the most apt comparison to make because we had never seen athletes like Juwan Howard and Chris Weber that had that traditional mindset of, okay, I'm a four. I'm going to get down on the block. I'm going to dunk this all over you. I'm going to shove the ball in your chest with every offensive basket that I make. But then to your point as well, we are also going through this idea of, hey, our power forwards can actually run the point now. And that's something that we've not seen before, let alone on a shoe. So having that shoe being able to give you that versatility, but still adhere to the traditional structures of a quote unquote power basketball shoe was something that we'd never seen before. And then to the other point that you're also making, Robbie, is the fact that we had three guards that we don't give the same amount of celebration and accolades to in the Fab Five, and that shoe was good enough for them. So we could see that you could go up and down a court at breakneck speed, throw these no-look passes, have a certain pizzazz with your game that was only amplified or accentuated by the shoe as well. And I can't really think of another instance where a shoe was as close to a symbiotic relationship with the players that it was supporting than the Hirachi in the Fab Five. Very true, because there are more... Um, there, there are other relationships between players and shoes that are closer, but those are all signature shoes. Obviously, in college, you can't have your own shoe. So this was as close as you could get. And I love that you brought up the guards because Jalen Rose wore it too. And he's what, like seven inches shorter and you know 60 pounds lighter than Juwan Howard or Chris Weber. And the shoe 
really got to show off his versatility by not only working for a big man or let's flip that not only working for a guard, but also working for a big man because all the competition were wearing, you know, bigger Adidas, you know, um, air force. So force, I should say Nike air maxes, just shoes that seem to pigeonhole with the position and the Hirachi just flipped all that. No, I mean, in fact, to take that step uh, one step further is the fact that I was on Basketball Reference just now, and I looked at the three principles of the Fab Five between Jawan, Jalen, and Chris. Jawan Howard was 6'9", 240. Chris Weber was 6'9", 245. Jalen Rose, actually 6'8", and 210. So you've got 30 pounds and about an inch from going from Jalen to Chris, but to the point that we're making, this shoe didn't succumb to the extra weight if you will, literally and figuratively of Chris Weber or Juwan Howard. And going to that idea of, okay, this wasn't a signature shoe. In all intents and purposes, it was as informal of a signature shoe as we've seen in modern basketball times. And I'm sure there'll be more examples as you and I workshop this to see, well, yeah, have you thought about this? But in that particular moment, you associated the player with the shoe and more importantly, you associated the shoe with that player. So if you went into your foot locker or your champs and said, give me the fab five shoe, there wouldn't be that lost in translation moment. The associate would know exactly what you're looking for and give it to you. And then you would be on your way to relive some of the memories that the fab five brought you. Man, it's, kind of shocking to me i didn't know jalen rose was that tall yeah i mean it was you gave me the brain point to kind of look at it and say okay what is the difference between these two and i think it also goes back to the point of flexibility and versatility when you were giving us the origin of the harachi and you were articulating the fact that this is a shoe that's meant to be flexible and vertical of uh, vertical flexible and versatile it truly is that because at times when you're watching the Fab Five play, they were interchangeable. Yeah, you may have had Chris Weber at the four and Jawan Howard at the five and Jalen Rose at the one. But ironically, one of Jalen Rose's most important points that he's made as an analyst now is positions were created for novices to watch the game. That team didn't play in the traditional position sense. Anybody felt comfortable bringing the ball up. Anybody felt comfortable taking the ball to the rack. I think the levels of discrepancy might have been associated with the shooters. But then even if you look at it, both Jawan Howard and Chris Weber had a decent amount of range for players within their position at that time. So it was as fluid of a concept as I can think of in a team sense. And to parlay this into another concept that we see in other sports in Dutch football, i.e. soccer, there's this idea of total football, meaning any player can move into any position and do that position with relative to no drop-off. And the Fab Five is that concept of total football articulated into a basketball sense. So it truly was total basketball that you could move these guys based on the personnel that they were facing against and have them tweak the tactics and strategy. And I think that is something that goes often overlooked with the Fab Five and their continued brilliance. Man, and that this shows how brilliant Jalen Rose is in his second career as an analyst, because that's a great observation. Positions were pretty much designed so a commentator or a play-by-play could help make the concepts a little bit easier for the audience. Um, so the Hirachi was so good that it still even shows up 10, 20 years later. So in 2003... 
when Kobe Bryant was enjoying his sneaker free agency, he famously rocked a pair of Air Hirachi basketballs in Laker colorways, following up the next season by wearing an away version of the exact same shoe in Laker colorways. And Kobe was still being Kobe, torching the Pistons, torching various people. Um, and he torched the Raptors in them. He's, I mean, who hasn't Kobe torched in his career? But that shoe could still work just as well, literally, you know, 11 years later. And on top of that, players like P.J. Tucker, who loved to break out this weird old shoes, rocked that same away Kobe Bryant, her um, Hirachi PE, two years ago in an NBA game in 2017 or 2018. So the design has held up so well that it's truly just been like, oh, you were playing Hirachis? Yep. You're officially like in a club or in a, a group of just people who understand good basketball shoes. And I was going to say it's almost the footwear equivalent of a members only jacket, but I also don't want to date myself or the podcast. And I guess another tangent is at this point, we should basically just give PJ Tucker the nickname of the Smithsonian because he at this point is just bringing out museum exhibits on his feet and educating the people in a way that only a sneaker podcast could even dream. So maybe that's a bucket list get for us in the future because truly PJ Tucker is putting a lot of people on game in a way that we haven't seen an athlete do. And I appreciate it because he'll pull something out so old that I forgot it existed. Like, like, oh, thanks for the reminder, PJ. Um, I never had those. Those are $8,000 shoes. But thank you for reminding me of their beautiful existence. Um, he's just fun. I mean, I don't like the whole playing him at center thing. I think that's going to be played very quick. But um, I don't know why my my computer keeps beeping my... I think uh, it might be on my end. So apologies. Sorry, no, I hear you. Could you so actually, um, what's kind of funny is back in 2014, they did a trash talk. It was literally called Trash Talking um, PE of the Hirachi Flight Basketball. And it was inspired by Chris Weber and Jalen Rose. Oh, wow. By their, well, by their well-versed, you know, by their well-versed uh, tongues and shit talking which is cool. Um, but no, this is a fantastic shoe. I didn't even really think existed. Another great sneaker moment where you find shoes you didn't know. But I mean, I think it retroed again in 2016 also. So it comes back with regularity. And that's just because for nostalgia purposes, it's fun. But if you want to hoop in it, you a thousand percent still can. Uh, Absolutely that. And correct me if I'm wrong, Robbie, but didn't Kyrie also have a Hirachi colorway that dropped in, I want to say either the two or the three? He did have a Kyrie two with that. It was like the the berry, like the, one of the OG colorways. Like the exactly. Berry, um, no, and I think, berry. in fact, I would say this, if this podcast hasn't already, I'll just go ahead and make the official proclamation. We're all in quarantine, so if you're looking for a good 90 minutes to two hours to kill, find the Fab Five ESPN 30 for 30. It is as eye-opening of an experience as somebody can get that's never really been familiar with that Fab Five story. And you can see the cultural hot points that that five 
person lineup brought to the basketball masses in a way that we haven't seen probably since Zion in terms of just generating that overall excitement and seeing somebody truly transcend the game, which occurs to us as a common talking point. Whenever we do these podcasts, we inevitably stumble upon these moments where we reminisce about players that were truly bigger than the game at that moment. And the Fab Five was that for a certain generation of people. Zion is going to be that for your little cousins and your little nephews. And there's a lot of overlap and a lot of similarities between the two stories. So homework for our sneaker history audience, watch the ESPN 30 for 30 on the Fab Five. I would argue it's the best 30 for 30 ever made. Ooh, I like this as a topic idea, but I'm also partial to the winning time. Reggie Miller against the Knicks, uh, 30 for 30, which is structured like an opera. Also got to reminisce about the U and the two 30 for 30s that they have, but it is really something and I'm hoping and I'm praying much like every other basketball fan in existence that we can somehow get a push of the release date for the last dance, because I think that might be the creme de la creme of the 30 for 30 movement. And that is going to be fantastic. It was funny because we're on quarantine. We were trying to justify our Disney plus subscription. So I told my wife, we need to see cool runnings and she hadn't seen it since it came out and she was three or five. I don't know. So I made a mock 30 for 30 and that is as 30 of a 30 of a story as Disney could make. And granted, they took a lot of embellishments with how the story actually happened in real life. But I definitely teared up at that the same way I do tear up at all the great 30 for 30s. <laughs> I've never heard anybody compare Cool Runnings to a documentary, but it is based off a true story. So I can I see it now. Um, Thank you. That's just a connection I never thought of. And the Miami U 30 for 30 is a close second for me. The first one, man, that's a good one. Yeah. No spoilers. Just go watch them. So we talked about, we spoke about Kobe here very briefly as he wore the Hirachi air basketballs. Um, It's just the Hirachi. I keep saying basketball at the end, just because it's really easy to mix that up with a trainer. So if I sound stupid to you, please know that I, I recognize it. So it took until 2004 for the Hirachi line to get a revamp. And what Nike did is they mixed elements of a whole bunch of different shoes. So you had the Zoom 2K3, which it partially borrows its name from, the Air Force One, Air Jordan 11, the Penny 4. Um, I want to say there was a Blazer in there too. I think so. And the original Air Hirachi, they put all of those pieces together, threw them in a pot, mixed them up, and we were given the 2K4 Hirachi, which is a spiritual successor to the 2K3 and the Hirachi line. So it's like a, a hybrid of two. And to this day, Hoopers swear by this shoe, myself included. I think I've had four, I've had four or five pairs in my life. And I just Anytime one comes out, I, I, I just buy it. It's, not, it's like a no-brainer for me. But that shoe, even more interestingly, wasn't supposed to be called the 2K3. Um, pardon me, the 2K4 Hirachi. It was actually supposed to be the Zoom Kobe 1, 
But uh, Kobe had that incident in Denver, Colorado, and due to PR nightmare possibilities, Nike pulled that branding off of it, even though you find tons of 2K4s with Kobe branding on them. Um, they didn't want to give that the quote-unquote signature treatment um, due to potential backlash. So he went on to completely wreck people in that shoe, went on to have multiple released PEs, multiple unreleased PEs, and just have a relationship with the shoe that wasn't truly his own, unlike any other player. I mean, I think we kind of alluded to it with the Fab Five, but this is another instance where I can see a player being synonymous with a signature, uh, with a sneaker, but that wasn't necessarily his signature. And to your point as well, Robbie, this is Kobe and arguably his athletic prime. He is coming off the last of his final runs before the Gasol acquisition, and he was very much the epitome of a lone wolf. He was just going to get his, and this sneaker was as part of his mythology as any other thing I could think of. And me being a sneaker noob that I am, I remember when we had the Fade to Black collection, this was the first sneaker that I saw that didn't have any sort of transparent, i.e. in the name, signature back to Kobe. So when kind of checking up and doing my research on it, that's when I realized, oh, wow, this was the unofficial Kobe one in a sense. And just to kind of give you a little bit of context as well, Robbie had alluded to the fact that this was the aforementioned Kobe one. And then because of certain circumstances that we don't want to delve into, it was brandished as something else. I was actually a Nike intern the summer that the Michael Vick shoe was about to release. And then unfortunately he got caught up with his ugliness as well. And it was weird because there were protests and there were three protesters outside of whq that summer that were just hammer and tongs for about two weeks protesting the fact that michael vick had gotten his own sneaker so i've seen that backlash in real life and it's as smart of a play as you can make it now granted we probably had a longer runway with the kobe controversy than we did the michael vick controversy but it is something that lets you know that there are more than just the design elements and the performance elements that go behind the shoe there is still a business behind it that we need to appreciate and understand a little bit more whenever it comes to these decisions that on the surface look very detrimental to the consumer that wants to buy the shoe Mm -hmm. so kobe bryant that year put up an extremely modest 24 points throughout the 0304 season and that was both in playoffs and regular season but not the most dominant by him. But you also have to remember that this was coming the following season, a lot of drama going on. Shaq and Kobe had just broken up. There was just a a lot of turmoil. But the 2K4 wasn't only exclusive to Kobe. Um, Tons of Nike athletes wore it that year. My favorite of the bunch is a nod to a signature athlete of years past. Penny Hardaway had New York Knicks PEs of the 2K4 with his own, you know, Penny logo, the one cent logo on the back of the shoe in black, orange, and blue. And A, it's weird to see that on, I still think a Kobe shoe, but to see Penny wearing a shoe late in his career that wasn't a Penny Penny playing for the Knicks and Penny no longer having any legs or game 
all just very weird. It's very Twilight zone and I think we're going to go through this in the fall when we see Tom Brady lace up for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's also one of those things where the first six years of my life, I lived in India, and we would always get these hats and these T-shirts that were on sale. And we thought they were really cool because they were representing American colleges and American franchises. So one day, I think we had just moved to America. I wanted to show out for my very first day of American school. So I wore this shirt that had the Michigan M logo. And then unbeknownst to me on the back, there was the NBA logo. And it's exactly to your point, Robbie. Something about this just didn't fit. And you can't really articulate it, but you just see it on a concept of a shoe or a product. And that's very much what the penny was the Penny Hirachi 2K4, and you're just waking, you're hoping you've woken up from this horrible, weird dream that isn't necessarily a nightmare, but it doesn't feel right. And I think that is one of those notable footprint or footnotes in the fact that even though it borrowed design elements from the Penny 4, I think we should have just given him the Kobe insignia just to be on the safe side. Right. Um, I mean, like I said earlier, there's a ton of 2k4 hirachis both released and unreleased with kobe branding on them and it just further makes it feel weird having other athletes on it um so alan houston interestingly enough also had a pe of them penny hardaway's nick brethren and at that point there's been a lot of busted backcourts in nba history but i would say alan houston and penny hardaway are both literally and figuratively the most busted backcourt you could have at that point in their careers. Allen Houston could not stay healthy, and we know Penny couldn't either. And they were both manning a backcourt together. That's Nick's management at its finest. I was going to say, the entire 2000s deserves its own Nick 30 for 30, and I'm sure the Lower East Scribe would love to narrate or at least be one of the talking heads on it. But there is a certain ineptitude that just seems to follow that franchise around and you don't know whether to laugh. You don't know whether to cry, but it's definitely something that deserves its proper commemoration. I would, I would veer towards the crying um, side of things, but you know, teach their own. Um, we also had a player worthy shoes that was coming into his own and never quite gets the respect when we talk about all time point guards, um, one Tony Parker, Tony Parker had a PE of these. Um, he would have been in like his uh, second or I think it's yeah. Second year in the league in the Oh three Oh four season. And when it's all said and done, he's undoubtedly a hall of famer, but I haven't seen a player like him who is as quick and shifty as him without having any type of athleticism, just all, well, vertical athleticism, excuse me. Um, he was just pure speed, shiftiness, and smarts, and it worked for many years. Absolutely. He had a change of pace that we thought was the gold standard, and then a couple of years later, he had a teammate of his join the league from Argentina that revolutionize what we expect in terms of how you use change of pace downshifting from gears or going upshifting to gears i'm sure that's the technical term and tony parker is definitely somebody i think we forget about and the late 
Spurs resurgence of 13 and 14, where we got to see that team compete on the highest stages for two more times, once obviously in victory, once in probably one of the sadder losses. And by then, you kind of saw flashes of that speed. But when Tony Parker first came to the league, to your point, Robbie, I don't think I ever saw a player utilize his speed as much as he did. And his speed was very much the basis of his game. To your point, we see players like John Wall or Kevin Johnson for an older generation where they had that mix of speed and explosiveness, especially in terms of their jumping. But TP was strictly speed. He was strictly about the agility. He was very fast. And it's something where we built his game up from the speed on. And that's also another fabulous crossroads moment because I remember around the 03, 04, 05 range, there was talks that Jason Kidd would have gone to the San Antonio Spurs and somehow Tony Parker would have ended up in New Jersey. And I think nobody benefits more from how things remained at the status quo, meaning Kidd never went to San Antonio, so TP stayed in San Antonio and never went to New Jersey. If we see Tony Parker lead his own team as a young man of 21, 22, I don't think he's going to have as thrilling and as prolific as a career as he did. So that's definitely one of those very interesting what if sliding doors moments. 100% is. And we didn't even mention the fact that Tony Parker popularized the floater, the in the lane floater to get shots over people much taller and that can jump much higher than you. So if you're short or unathletic, Go watch some Tony Parker highlights and learn the floater for for yourself. But uh, Tony Parker's going to come up come up a couple times in this conversation. He's had many many Hirachi PEs. Um, so outside of that, one last player I want to touch on in the NBA when it comes to this two K four is one Dirk Nowitzki. He rocked a couple PEs of these. He actually was one of the poster people for the shoe when it released. There was a general release colorway that was very similar to the Mavericks uniform at that time. But Dirk, 0304 Dirk was, he was on the radar, but that's when people really started to notice him as a force, not only without Steve Nash, but a force in the NBA. Absolutely. I think there are certain players that take your breath away when you first see them play because they're unlike anything you've seen before. And Dirk was definitely one of those players because of the fact that we've always had this idea of what we expect a European player to be, which is soft, finesse. And Dirk did get associated with those tags, but I think that had more to do with performances in the postseason. But when you first saw Dirk and you saw him pull up from three-point range and hit swish after swish after swish, and then also having the wherewithal to take the ball into the hoop and be able to hold his own in terms of being a ball handler at that size, we're never going to see a player like him that takes our breath away as much as he did those first couple of years with Nash. And then also being able to do it without Nash, where at least in the regular season, we thought this guy was a great player, warranting an MVP. And then when we saw those collapses, in a way, he was kind of the James Harden of his time where he was just known for these high-profile collapses. Obviously, you have the 05-06 Miami Heat-Dallas Mavericks final series where Dwayne Wade was a force in terms of his partnership with the referees at the time allowed him to take upwards of 10 to 15 shots at the line. And Dirk seemingly capitulated in those moments. And when there was an anticipation in 06 and 07 for Dirk to 
redeem himself, redeem the Mavericks. And then they got, got by the, we believe warriors in a way that we haven't seen a one eight team get dominated like that. And I think Dallas might've won one game, but every game the warriors won, it truly seemed like they were running them out of the gym and tying this back to the Harachi that Dirk was wearing. He, it's a very interesting concept. This Harachi seems to attract players that fundamentally change what we think and what we know in terms of expectations around a player and their position. So I think Dirk is another one of these cornerstones in the Harachi's legacy of redefining basketball as we know and expect it. That's so true that they would target players like that. And I love that you brought up the free throw shooting. Dirk, m- most big men, you can foul them and force them to be uncomfortable at the line. And Dirk was most comfortable at the line. I believe he has the playoff record for the most free throws made in a game, or maybe he's in the finals record, but he went like, he made like 20 something free throws in one game. <clears throat> he I mean, was just amazing. As, and I was just going to say, just a footnote on all of that was the fact that there was a revelation that he likes to hum David Hasselhoff's I've been looking for freedom at the line. And we saw that, evolve and explode into this idea of floating heads behind the Dallas uh, free throw at Miami and people humming and you having David Hasselhoff make cameos and kind of extending his legacy as quote unquote star by about two to three more years because of Derman's uh, jerks Dermot. Uh, wow. Pause because of jerk. Uh, jer- ah, sorry. Cut because of Dirk's German stereotypes. Sorry about that. No, you're good. Um, so very true. Um, I didn't know about the David Hasselhoff thing. So that's, that's hilarious. But the, I want to kind of segue off of the 2K4. But before I do, I do just want to bring up that it remains relevant. And it truly is one of the best hoop shoes of all time. Rajon Rondo would rock PEs of them in 2012, when the, um, the Celtics would face off against the Heat. You see players now break it out from time and time again. Um, just a flawless basketball shoe in every sense of the way. Um, so now, a quick, quick question for you and noodle on this maybe for next week's episode. Is that the most important shoe of that decade? Oh, without a doubt. Okay. I would say, yeah, with, from 2000 to 2010, the most important shoe. I would almost make an argument for some Kobe's, but I'll save that for the next decade and for another episode. But um, the follow-up to that, we have the 2K5, which oddly enough has never, ever been retroed. And it's one of my biggest talking points. I will bring it up until they retro that shoe. But just another performance beast. It did a lot of the same as the 2K4. They look extremely similar. But I would argue that the 5 is even a bit more comfortable It's hard for me to stand behind that given I haven't worn a pair in over 10 years. And the last Hirachis I wore were a couple months ago. I mean, the last 2K4s I wore were a couple months ago. So a little fuzzy on that, but it improved the flexibility even more with a little bit of free run tech in the front. But another onslaught of Kobe PEs, both released and not. But um, before we talk about any other player, I want to talk about Earl Boykins. Um, one Denver Nuggets guard that many people either remember fondly or remember thinking, why is this guy on the court? And some of our younger readers might not even know who we're talking about. 
So you came across a commercial series featuring him. Tell me a little bit about that. So the commercial series is probably one of my favorite campaigns Nike's done. It's kind of washed away. I don't really see any sort of references to it whenever we have this discussion of most iconic or most fun Nike commercials. But the premise was, imagine a nature documentary series like Planet Earth and the tone of this spot is very sinister and each NBA player had an animal comparison. So some of them were very obvious. You had LeBron as the lion. Dirk Nowitzki, the aforementioned, was an eagle. And the most peculiar slash intriguing slash memorable spot was comparing Earl Boykins, all five foot five of him, to the poisonous dart frogs that we see in Southern America that are these neon red and blue colors. And it just spoke to the fact that when Earl Boykin was on the court, he was a killer in the true sense of the word. Yes, he was short, arguably the second shortest player that I can remember with Muggsy Bogues being the shortest of 5'3". But there was a fearlessness to his game that we forget about. Not only that, he was strong as all get out. There are stories about him being the strongest player in the Denver Nuggets at the time where they had Carmelo. I think it might have been around the same time that they'd also picked up Kenyon Martin. But he was just an assassin. And if you can watch this spot, and I'm sure we will make a reference to it within the posting of this episode, do yourself a favor and watch it. And just look at the tone of the spot, but also the imagery. And that will tell you all about Earl Boykins than anything anyone ever else can. And so I'm probably doing it a disservice, but I will reiterate once again, he was truly a once in a generation type of player. And watch the spot because you'll truly get to see the brilliance of this young scary player that had no business making it in the league, but he stayed there for quite a while. It sounds like you have a, a, a little love affair for Earl Boykins. I think I have a love affair for any sort of player that is in a way the same size as you and I. And I mean, Robbie, you're what about five, five, nine, five, eight. I'm six, one, but very oh, close. Oh, no, no, I'm, Clearly, just I have no sense of depth at all. Damn this quarantine. I'm 5'8", and Earl Boykins was shorter than both of us significantly. And he was able to hold his own on a night-in, night-out basis. And I do think that's something that deserves to be rewarded. And the other thing is, I'm just fond of that campaign. And hopefully in the future, we get to do our favorite Nike campaigns because I can hopefully wax poetic about this series of spots that captured my imagination in a way that was almost a gateway drug into getting into popular basketball culture as well as popular sneaker culture. Because I don't think any industry has as memorable of spots that random people just have a certain resonance with. So That's true. Nike basketball and various basketball shoe commercials just hit a different kind of hit a different note for people than other commercials. Speaking of cultural um, significance, one Damon Stoudemire had a 2K5 PE that was absolutely gorgeous. I believe he was playing for the Memphis Grizzly at the time. Um, they had his like iridescent swoosh that kind of looks like a mood ring. It's just one of the coolest swooshes I've ever seen. But um, Damon Stoudemire for a little bit was supposed to be the guy. He was supposed to be the guy in Portland. And he, he bounced around a bit and never really quite panned out. I mean, Mighty Mouse was transcendent because his claim to fame was he won the Rookie of the Year the same year that I think Kevin Garnett came into the league. 
And as the popular so- song comes, here he comes to save the day. Especially in Toronto, he seemed to just be the guy. And when we have that discussion of memorable Toronto Raptors, obviously the conversation starts and ends with Vince. But I think before Vince, there was Damon Stoudemire. And he's another one where we have local ties to him. I believe he has family in the area. So I think that's why there might have been a higher expectation than probably what was to be allowed for that player. But he is a general in the truest sense of the word. I had a conversation recently with a barber friend of mine, and we were just kind of going over these guards that get lost. And he is in that Andre Miller realm where – on his day, he was very efficient. He was very deadly. And he will not probably get the recognition that he deserves, but he deserves to have his day in the sun because he was a great player. I would take Andre Miller over Damon Sotomayor. I think I would too. But I also like the fact that Andre Miller is just a straight up OG. Just There's something about him that exudes the fact that he's had an old man game since he was 13 years old. Man, he stuck around for a long time. Now, another player here that had huge expectations and was kind of delivering on him for a year or two, Ben Gordon had a couple gorgeous PEs of the 2K5. But he was one player that would, you know, a real flash in the pan two years and then fell out of favor by just about everybody. He reminded me a lot of a certain type of guard that we're seeing a resurgence. And I will ask you this because you are the preeminent Zach Levine fan in my life, Robbie. How do you make the attempts of, did they have a similar skill set or am I just misremembering something? I think you're, they don't have a similar skill set other than the fact that they're volume inefficient scores, but they are the same in the sense of for a year or two, you thought they could go one of two ways into the gutter or into greatness. And Ben, I don't want to say he went into the gutter. I feel like he was put in a lot of bad positions, but he was coming into his own when the league was shifting from a player, shifting away from players of his skill set. No longer were the days of ISO go get me a mid-range crossover pull-up. Like Those days were gone, and he just didn't have the shooting to evolve, the consistent shooting to evolve with the times. Zach Levine has. Zach can do everything and is more athletic. But I think they, they shared a lot of the same expectations. And I think similarly as well, both of them come from this pedigree, whereas now I think the most famous player to come out of Connecticut recently has been Kemba Walker, but for a while it might have been Ben Gordon. And I think he was a very complimentary player to another name that gets forgotten in modern basketball circles, which is Emeka Okafor. They had a nice partnership as well, if I remember correctly. But Emeka, yes. Yes. Who else were the uh, 05 there, Robbie? I mean, not too many other great ones. and I mean – I want to go on to the 2K6. I mean, what ended up being called is the Air Hirachi Elite, but for intensive purposes, it is the 2K6. Um, Josh, um, Jason Richardson wore that shoe um, in the twilight time of his Golden State years before he ended up doing a little bit of moving around the league. But he was one of my favorite players to watch. He was like Michael Jordan, if all Michael Jordan could do was dunk nasty. No, that's fair. I mean, I think 
a lot of people's memories of him, especially in that Golden State era, are defined by that We Believe run. And he always seemed to be the one that was catching the oops, whether they were from Stephen Jackson, Baron Davis, Matt Barnes, hell, maybe Kalina Azabuke. That's my obscure NBA player of the week. Uh, he just seemed to have those bunnies that everybody dreams about and he would jump out of the gym and no dunk seemed to be too ridiculous for him to attempt because in all probability he was probably going to make it. And it's one of those things that when he got to Phoenix, he evolved his game a little. So he turned into another shooter that could be leveraged by the likes of Steve Nash, but he still had those moments where he would just jump out of the gym and attack the rim in a ferocity that we hadn't seen in a while. Man. Yeah. I mean, you hit that right on you. I don't have anything else to say other than that. You that's a hundred percent correct. And he was a dunk contest champion. Um, just could give you 20 points on a given night, but not every night and would just be entertaining to watch. Um, the two case six or air Hirachi elite, I would say is one of the, one of the least popular of the bunch. It's hard to have a three piece of greatness. There has to be a drop off, but that same year in a pseudo conjunction with the NCAA, they released a college basketball specific air zoom Hirachi 64, which was meant to signify the change to 64 teams taking place. You know, there's technically more than 64. What? Uh, I think to your point, Rachi, uh, Rachi, wow. Robbie, that's sir. Um, we now have 68 teams because we have the first in, but yeah, the 64 were great. So a lot, a lot of good PEs there. Tony Parker again, DeMarcus Cousins, um, Rashad McCants. Rashad McCants is another one of those players that was expected to do a lot and just fell victim of the Minnesota curse, <laughs> I would say. But he had he had Hirachi PEs almost from every model from 2K5 up. But um, this gorgeous green and purple, like that old Timberwolf color scheme and just... Yeah. That navy blue that isn't necessarily a navy blue, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And he, in a similar sense, like Ben Gordon, are these players that seem like products of a bygone era, even though they weren't that far removed from when what we consider to be modern basketball. They, I mean, just he, this could never pan out the way you wanted them to. Um, Chris Paul had a rookie of the year. Hirachi 64 PE, that is absolutely stunning. I recommend you go take a look into that. Hirachi 64 Chris Paul PE. Freaking fantastic. Um, But, you know, not really. All these shoes we're about to talk about haven't ever gotten a retro treatment, and I don't think they ever will. They're kind of going to go into the back end of the Nike vault. I mean, I'm looking through the 64 now, and there are a lot of players. I mean, Los Angeles Laker, great, as well as UCLA, great. Jordan Farmar's got a nice pair, as does Adam Morrison. So this is definitely a shoe that captivated somebody at Nike to make it the official shoe of that tournament. And it was a great tournament here. I mean, we make fun of Adam Morrison and the pros, but college Adam Morrison was 
a bucket. A certified bucket, yeah. Um, so then we go on to shoes like the Hirachi 09 and the Hirachi 08. The Hirachi 08 being most famously known for its collaboration with Kanye West. Um, he had an Air Force 180 before, I mean, an Air Max 180 before that, but it was the second Nike Kanye shoe, and that was a big deal at the time. Um, again, more Tony Parker PEs. But the 09, I think, is interesting because a lot of the big men in the league went to that shoe. Carlos, Carlos Boozer wore it. Paul Millsap wore it. Um, Brandon Roy had a PE, who isn't a big man, but still is cool. So um, compare that. And it was something that we kind of alluded to earlier in the podcast as well. Robbie and I had this discussion where it almost seemed that in that particular facet of the era, that the players that were getting these PEs, it almost seemed like it was an acknowledgement that, hey, you're a great player that may not be worthy of a signature shoe, but let's give you the next best thing, which is this shoe that can be worn by a gamut of different players at a gamut of different positions. And it seemed to help the game. Like, can you think of an instance where if you're a guard, you get a shoe that might be characterized more as being a power shoe and how that would negatively impact your game? The Hirachi never did that. The Hirachi was as good of a shoe in terms of whatever position you played. There was no drop off when you played in it. But the, the 09 is specific. You're <laughs> totally correct. But the 09 really was like the power forwards okay. shoe choice. I rag on Carlos Boozer and the internet rags on him a lot for his hair plugs, his hair, hairspray, his hairspray paint, whatever you want to call it. Sure. But he was dumb as hell for leaving LeBron James when LeBron got to the Cavs. But when he left, he was a stud for the Utah Jazz. Him and Darren Williams, and I believe Darren Williams had a PE of some of these shoes too. He Carlos Boozer was great from like – Oh three, oh four to like oh seven. Absolutely. I mean, he was a part of that Duke team that has a certain amount of reverence with that fan base, and he was very much the epitome of that power player. So, Robbie, if you don't mind me asking you a technical question, what about the oh nine shoe made it a more power driven shoe as opposed to the earlier shoes? where the great, greatest asset they had was around the versatility and the flexibility of it. I think it worked because it had all of the high top old kind of construction cues of a bigger shoe, but at the same time, it was very light. And Carlos Boozer and Chris Bosch, more so Chris Bosch in his young age, his young years, was extremely quick. Like you needed something to help protect the ankles, but you needed something that wasn't going to hinder your explosiveness. And it's not like ounces are going to make that big of a difference, but over 82 game season, having a lighter shoe when you're jumping a million times a game is going to make a little bit of a difference. So I think it was more so the fact that it was protective and durable, but also extremely light and allowed you to still you know, be a forward who could play with his back to the basket and still have powerful dunks on the break. Okay, fair enough. Now, kind of like the, the closing point here, because there are other Hirachis like 
you know, the Hirachi Free in 2012, which was the exact same thing as the Air Hirachi, but with full Nike Free tooling, and the Flight Hirachi Ultra from 2017, which was just an abomination to the line. That she was ugly as hell. We had Amari Stoudemire rocking the Zoom Hirachi Trainer in 2010 throughout his first year with the Knicks. And this is interesting not only because, you know, the uh, the Suns, not the Suns, the Knicks gave away everything in the sink to get Amari Stoudemire, but the fact that only really him and Tabo Sevalusha, not Tabo Sevalusha, um, Andre Robertson. No, oh, no, I think it's Tabo Sevalusha. Um, wears Air Max 90s yes. in a game. So wearing trainers in an NBA game is very rare. And Amari did it probably better than anybody else ever has. No, I mean, exactly. To your point, he was the big free agent acquisition for the Knicks that summer where we saw the LeBrons, the Wades, the Boshes of the world all go to free agency. And he was the one prize that the New York Knicks were actually able to achieve. And arguably his best year as a Knick in the fact that he probably, yes, I'm looking at it right now. This is the one season where he played the most games as a Knick. He had his best overall season there. And I'm wondering the fact that he wore a trainer in this particular year, did that impact some of his injuries? That's highly speculative on my part, but I'm wondering if there is a correlation by the fact that he wore a training shoe for his best year. And I wonder, does his career pan out a different way if he chose a different piece of footwear to rep for that year? Other than that, that was probably the last year of Amari Stoudemire in his prime where he was as explosive in finishing the break, having the bunnies to jump and just jump over people. But then he was developing, once again, these different facets of the game that we'd associate with a player like Chris Bosh, where we were starting to see a little bit of a range. And it is a tragedy in the same way that Antonio McDice is a tragedy that we were robbed of watching this player who had the surreal athleticism that we haven't seen since in that frame. And all the best to Mari Sadamar, who I think is still playing actively in Israel and maybe a part of the big three if the league takes hold this summer. Man, Amari was top five in MVP voting in that year. He was training shoe. Yeah, man. I mean, this I'm a sucker for Amari when he was healthy. Those Phoenix Sun years were fantastic, but that first year with the Knicks, oh, oh, Nelly. And Antonio McDice is another very forgotten player. Um, you think of him with the Nuggets when he was healthy, but then old man Antonio McDice with the Detroit Pistons during their championship run and subsequent Eastern Conference dominance for like four years, five years straight. I also believe he had a, a year or two with the Knicks as well, because I think he might have been one of those chosen ones that is going to bring New York basketball back to prominence. But that may be another topic for another day. It's funny. So you had Allen Houston and Penny Hardaway busted as hell in your backcourt. And then you have Amari Stoudemire plays well, gets busted. You totally mess up the mellow thing. And next thing you know, it's been since 1999 was the last sizable Knicks playoff push. Wow. And that was where they made it to the finals, right? I mean, they did. And they lost to the San Antonio Spurs in the lockout season. But 
I, th- I think we'll end the episode on a low note and to say New York basketball figured out. No, I, I think we were extremely complimentary to New York basketball because we did acknowledge the greatness that was the Amari Stoudemire year, his first year. And yeah, look at it this way. As a Kansas City Chiefs fan who would only watch his team lose and lose and lose, you have to hit a certain rock bottom before you can begin your descent back up to championship. And I think the Knicks are at rock bottom, or if not, they're really close from it. So at this point, I only expect great things from the Knicks. But that's just me trying to be a nicer person because I'm in quarantine and I don't know what else to do. I think they've been at rock bottom. They just keep digging the hole deeper, hitting a new rock lows. But just, it's fun to imagine what the Knicks would have been had Mello and Amare both been healthy for a couple of years. That would have been something magical. Excellent. Speaking of something magical, Robbie, uh, anything else you want to add? Because this was as brilliant of a curated topic that I've received. So thank you for this. No, thank you. Um, check out the post on sneakerhistory.com. Um, I break down the full history of the line, and that's kind of where we got the inspiration of this episode. So give that a look. Um, there will be more additional content. So just keep an eye on what Know Your Roots Sports is doing. Make sure you're following Sneaker History. Um, I've been Robbie. I really, pre- I've been Robbie. I'll probably be Robbie tomorrow still. Um, you can follow me at R A H B E E 702. it. where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at Rowit M13 on Instagram and at Rohizi on Twitter. Rohizi. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks for talking with me. And I hope everybody liked the episode and has a good rest of your day. Hey everyone, this is Nick again. Before you take off, I wanted to ask a couple favors of you. If you're interested in more content from the Sneaker History crew, become a member of our Patreon page where we post daily content, drop exclusive episodes, and host monthly giveaways. We'll even help you hunt for your grails. Check us out at patreon.com sneakerhistory. Also, make sure you sign up for our email newsletter at sneakerhistory.com email. We send out weekly updates on the footwear business and what we're working on here at Sneaker History. Last but not least, take a second to tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how much it means to someone, and it might even plant the seeds for something even bigger. As always, we appreciate you, and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Hey, hey, Nick here again. Before you take off, I want to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. Be sure to hop into our Discord to answer this episode's The Last Shot question and get to know our community of sneaker enthusiasts. If you'd like more insights on the trending topics in the sneaker world, I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com newsletter. And last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far a simple compliment can take you, and we all know how good it feels to be on the receiving end of some appreciation. Thank you for all the support, and we will catch you on the next episode. Peace.